Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified. The podcast that has driven me to drink. I'm Emily. And Sarah's drunk. Shh. Tell me one thing. Just have to just have to say one, Emily, one thing. Emily. 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 Hmm. <laughs> I've got nothing. I'm actually not that drunk yet. I'm working on it. it you're all I, the characters from the uh, snake juice. Snake juice? <laughs> it was snake juice, I think. Yeah. Um, we're going to kind of do some of our housekeeping business up top because I, we're just not going to have Sarah by the end of this episode. God willing. So first, we're going to explain the premise, because, I mean, otherwise, she's not, like, leaving in the middle of the episode. That would be insane. Uh, yeah. So I have had uh, one glass of whiskey, because that's what the episode's about. I am midway through my second glass of whiskey. Also, I don't drink a lot, so my tolerance is just, like, Yeah, yeah. Um, I usually have one whiskey, and I get way too tipsy, and I have to stop. And I'm forcing myself to not do that tonight, because... I don't know why. Why are we doing this? I This was my idea. It, because I got high and we did that episode about weed. Uh, so that brings me to my question is, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking uh, an Italian raspberry mead. Interesting. I was going to give you shit for not drinking whiskey, but you know, that's intriguing. Uh, so a while ago, I don't know. Travis and I were watching something. It's irrelevant, but I was like, I've never tried a mead, I don't think. And Travis is like, oh, it's, you know, it's good. You know, whatever. We tried to find it. We couldn't. And then we were at the coast uh, last weekend and we passed this really cute place. Cute. Uh, this really f- cool place called like the Black Squid or something. And they like specifically advertised mead. And it was like a tap house and a bottle, whatever. I haven't had a lot to drink, uh, but my brain is just shot. So, you know, we went in and we got uh, two canned meads, which were fine. They tasted kind of like beer. And then Travis got one that was like made in the the Danish tradition. That was fine. And then I got this raspberry mead and mead is good. I enjoy mead. I'm thinking about becoming like a snobby mead person. I was going to ask you, like, what's the difference between like mead and just traditional beer? But that's a good episode for a mini, so don't answer that. Just the short of it is that mead is actually a wine made from honey. Oh, oh, I have had mead. <laughs> Didoy. Yeah, there's a, it's actually my favorite winery in Minnesota. It's called Wine Haven, and they make a honey mead, and it's very good. Yeah, I was going to say, you live in fucking Norse country. <laughs> like, that's their thing. So uh, before we get into talking about whiskey and right. slowly descending into drunkenness, um, we're going to do some business up top, which is mostly just that we have a shitload of new merch. Guys, we did so much new merch. And it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we discontinued our old uh, skull shirt, which I actually happen to be wearing right now. But, <laughs> um, you know, Look, we, we have... rebranded over a year ago. It's time to move on. I mean, we've, we've had the new logo for a while. Uh so yeah, there's there's a ton of new merch. All of those proceeds are still going to the NAACP, I believe we said. Yeah. Um, no, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, sorry. We, yeah, said that a million years ago. Yeah. Uh, so that's where that's going. But there are some really I mean, super cute new merch designs. Um, ones that have 
tested my limits of what I am able to do. Yes, we are not professional graphic designers, but we can fake being good graphic designers. Designer? Yeah. Graphics designers? <laughs> graphic designers. I'm not that junk yet. I'm just very happy to be recording again. Uh, um, it's very yeah. excited, Emily. I'm I'm very in love with the, the new tarot card design, and I think that will probably be a purchase that I make for myself. Yeah, I'm getting that on something. Probably a tote bag. Yeah, you know, when I stop spending money on makeup that I'm not wearing anywhere. Yeah. All right, uh, sources for this. 90% of what I'm going to talk about is from this book called 99 Drams of Whiskey by H- Kate Hopkins. Yes. You read, I read a book? A book. I read two books. I'm so proud of you. Uh, the other one is The Whiskies of Ireland by Peter Mulryan, which I actually bought in Ireland and has been sitting on my bar card as decoration for three years. <laughs> <laughs> actually opened it up. It was very good. Uh, and then I've got some other stuff, just mostly from like... Pro- Add additional little things from Primer Magazine, BBC, and a website called Whiskey Advocate, which is just... I don't think it needs an advocate, but that's very nice. Yes. Here's a peek behind the curtain. I usually write maybe eight to ten pages of notes. I have 16 for whiskey. And like I said, I've already had like a glass and a half. And I'm talking very generous glasses of whiskey. We'll see how much we get through. (laughs) I might die. Which will make this a very special episode of Afternoonified. It's haunted. <laughs> so whiskey. Yes. <laughs> so whiskey, generally speaking, is an alcoholic beverage distilled from fermented grain and aged in wooden casks. That's general, the most intro definition you can get. <laughs> it's alcohol. <laughs> it, it gets you drunk. <laughs> uh, most whiskey is made from barley, corn, wheat, or rye, and will go by different names depending on either the grain that was used or the region where it's distilled. I was wondering what the distinction was. Yeah. So bourbon, scotch, and rye are all types of whiskey. Like whiskey is the overarching kind of like drink. They're different kind of like regional variants. Um, is whiskey spelled with an E or no E? I spell it with an E. The difference is like Irish whiskeys will spell it with an E. Uh, Scotch whiskey will tend to be spelled spelled without the E, so just W-I-S-K-Y. Um, but in America, it's spelled with an E, I believe. Most places, it's spelled with an E. I spell it with an E, unless I'm talking about Scotch whiskey, in which case I will correct that. But okay. I mean, I'm talking. You're not going to see it. So <laughs> You're not going to see how it's spelled. Yeah, no. I mean, in my notes, you can see it, but no one's going to read my notes. You're going to hear my notes. Uh, That's a podcast. (laughs) The difference is, for some of these, is Scotch whiskey is whiskey that's distilled and matured in Scotland. Weird. It differs from Irish whiskey in that it is typically peated, while Irish whiskey is not. And we'll get into later what that actually means. Like they put a little Danny Tamborelli in every bottle? Yes. Bourbon is an American whiskey that meets a few specific requirements, namely that that it is aged in new oak casks, and distilled from a mash that contains at least 51% corn, as all the best American drinks are. Corn? Yeah, corn is the most American vegetable, not vegetable, you'll ever see. It's a grain. Is it? Yeah. Are we the only ones with corn? I mean, I think it's a genuinely American crop. Like the continent of America. I think it's been like exported and grown in other places, but I think it's native to the Americas. I don't know. My dad farms corn. Hell if I know what it's. Anything I think this about is it. the first time I've learned what your dad farms. Yeah, corn and soybeans. And we used to have hogs until about I went to college and then they decided that was too much work. So How do you plant a hog? Is it like head up 
you bury them in the ground, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then a tree will sprout, and it'll have little piglets hanging off. That the is the cutest fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, except for the dead pig that you buried in the ground. I use the circle of life, Sarah. That's literally the circle of life. We don't have time to get off track, but I just wanted to inform everybody that when I was little and growing up on a farm with pigs, I would go down to the barn and I would march up and down the lawn, like from one end of the barn to one end of the pen to the other, singing to the pigs. I was adorable. Did you also have a spider that lived in the corner that let you know which one was some pig? We had spiders. They were very big and I was afraid of them. All right. Uh, the last one, rye. Likewise, it's a whiskey that uses rye as its primary grain, hence the name. Uh, it tends to make it a little spicier, whereas the corn and bourbon tends trend sweeter. Like, corn is very sweet. It, sweet corn is a thing. Corn syrup is a thing. So that's a thing. <laughs> um, like I said, I'll get into a little more. Oh, I just spilled. Gotta stop talking with my hands while drinking. Uh, So I'll get into a little more detail throughout the episode, but it really is as simple as that. Like, there are some regional variances, but the differences are minimal, and there isn't one that's really superior to the other besides your own personal preference. Like, I'm drinking Irish whiskey, because that's the type of person I am. I don't Um, know what we have here. I think we have Buffalo Trace here, whatever the fuck that is. Yeah, that's a bourbon, I'm pretty sure. Um, My bar cart right now, it literally is two Irish whiskeys, a bourbon, a scotch, in a bottle of gin. Why would you keep that Satan juice in your home? <laughs> you don't like gin? Gin it's gives me like... nightmares and uh, like I only get hangovers with gin. So that's what I feel about vodka. I, I won't drink vodka unless it's in like a really cool cocktail. Um, but yeah, 90% of the time I'm drinking whiskey and sometimes in the summer I'll treat myself to a little gin. But so one last note before we really dry, uh, dive in. Whiskey is produced all over the world, but the big four countries are Ireland, Scotland, the United States, and Canada. Specifically the southern United States, right? Yeah, Tennessee, Kentucky, that kind of area. Uh, so that's primarily where I'm going to focus because, like I said, good God, this is an hour-long podcast and I have like so many notes already. Please just go buy a book. Um, actually, go buy that one by Kate Hopkins because it's actually really good. <laughs> it's like, it's not so much, there's history in it and I've, Um, got a lot of that history from that book but mostly it's kind of like her trip like she takes trips to Ireland and Scotland and like Canada and all around like going to different distilleries and really examining like the differences between whiskey and why people are so into whiskey it's very good go read it I swear to god I was like oh it's like a documentary which that's what nonfiction books are please generally what it is (sighs) So there's no single origin for whiskey as a drink. Like If you ask the Irish, they're going to claim it came from Ireland. If you ask, ask the Scots, they're going to complain or they're going to claim it's totally Scottish. But if you want the truth, record keeping at this time was truly atrocious. We have no way of knowing. So and even if we did, like there isn't a moment in time we can point to and say, yes, that's the first time anyone in the world stilled themselves a whiskey. Now, I don't want to be that person. I definitely want the Scots and the Irish to like me. Um, It's just a mash of any number of grains that's been fermented in a barrel. We'll get in. Yeah, we're going to we're about to get into it. Okay, because I feel like that's not it's and that's part of the thing. It's not a complicated concept. And like even if we had a like even if we had good record keeping, there isn't a moment in time that we can. Oh, I already said this. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's more likely than not that several people across several different regions probably stumbled upon it more or less independently. That's like that's what I'm betting on. I have no historical backup for this. Just like it's not a complicated concept, and once the tools are there, like I'm sure plenty of people in different places came up with it at the same time. Uh, so, but if we really want to go back to like where it started, um, it starts with the process of distillation. And that dates all the way back to 3000 BC when China developed an early version of the process. And we'll get into kind of what that is in a second. Uh, But it would later be refined by priests in Egypt and then further advanced by Muslim chemists, specifically a man named Abu Musa Jabir Ibn Hayyan. Don't, isn't it part of the Islam religion that they don't drink? Yes. Okay. Which is interesting, but he, he used it a lot for... Uh, medicines and perfumes was kind of ah, his thing. Okay, yeah. He didn't distill things to drink. He used to distill things for things for other reasons. Already starting to slur my words. This is promising. <laughs> so Jabir ibn Hayyan lived about 800 AD in what is modern day Iraq, and without him, we probably wouldn't have whiskey at all. So way to go, dude! I love this guy. He's great. Uh, he's seen by many to be the father of chemistry, and he either influenced or created a number of processes still used in modern chemistry today. Not just distillation, but like crystallization and the synthesis of hydrochloric and nitric acids. So good on him. Uh, So like I said, he primarily distilled alcohol for use in medicines and perfumes. Uh, His major contribution to the process was his improvement on the alembic still, which was the precursor to a pot still. A still consists of two vessels and they're kind of connected by a tube and they work essentially the same way. It's like you fill up the first vessel about two-thirds full with a fermented liquid, and then you heat it up. Because alcohol boils at a lower temperature than water, it will evaporate first. So then the evaporated alcohol travels up kind of the swan neck. I'll post pictures of this on Instagram. It's so hard to explain in, like, words. Uh, But it evaporates, like, it travels upwards into the swan neck and into the connecting line arm, where it's cooled back into a liquid and sent into the second vessel. So now it's liquid again, but it has a higher concentration of alcohol. Just for, like, the the six people who might understand this and, like, gain a better understanding of what Sarah's talking about, um, if you recall the film Perfume Story of a Murderer. <laughs> Which everybody has seen. They should. <laughs> uh, when he's in Dustin Hoffman's basement. <laughs> I've not seen this movie. This means nothing to me. What? Please continue. No. Christ. No, I feel it, like- he... He's a perfumer, so he's making essential oils, so he has a still. Yeah. But, I cannot yeah. believe you haven't seen this movie. No, and I feel like at this point I shouldn't. Like no, I feel you- like that should be our thing, where you have seen this movie and I have not seen this movie, and that's the difference between us as people. Are you, you really going to do that to Ben Wishaw? You really <laughs> going to do that to Alan Rickman? Christ. So the pot still would eventually make its way up to the British Isles, which likely by way of the Moors, who ruled in the Iberian Peninsula, which is modern-day Portugal and Spain. Um, so it's a Moorish alchemist who finally decided to use, the te- use this technology for something useful, which was distilling wine, uh, which produced a drink that was basically the precursor to brandy, which this is something I learned is that's what brandy is, is distilled wine. Huh. So this guy, his name is Arnaldus de Villanova, and he lived on the Iberian Peninsula during the 13th and 14th centuries. And because he was fluent in both Latin and Arabic, he translated a lot of the knowledge from the Arab world and helped kind of transfer to the Catholic one. So, and it's possible that considering his own experiments, like, this probably included Jabir ibn Hayyan's advancements to distilling. Um, so from there, what seems most likely is that 
someone somewhere in the British Isles, probably a Catholic monk or an alchemist or someone who was both, got their hands into Villanova's Latin text and thought, hmm, this is cool and all, but I wonder what would happen if we distilled ale. Ah. Ah, yeah. I will say I enjoyed learning all of this, like... As someone who has been a whiskey person for a long time, I knew fucking nothing about whiskey. And now I feel very informed. Yeah, and it's I'm fun excited to learn to about things people. that you enjoy. Yeah. Now I get to be insufferable about pizza whenever someone brings it up. <laughs> so in the Middle Ages, distilled spirits of this kind, including grain whiskey, would have been called aqua vitae, which is Latin for water of life, which is appropriate. Oh my god, why did I just... Oh, fuck. I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and they went to the Fountain of Youth. Never mind. Keep going. <laughs> Uh, so the Gaelic translation would have been uskaba. <laughs> Why is that funny? It's a funny word. Uskaba. <laughs> uh, so this is the term that we that was used from like the 16th to the 18th century, and it's where we got the word whiskey. You can kind of wow. See. Yeah, I I mean it's a you got to stretch before you take that leap. I mean but... it's also Gaelic. I'm sure. Like I have, I looked up the pronunciation of it. I'm sure I'm not doing it justice. I will say when I lived in Ireland, I took like, I started taking a Gaelic class uh, and we went to like the first two weeks and then we stopped going, which is basically what I did for all of the classes I took in Ireland. That's not the story. (laughs) That's for another episode, I guess. Or your therapist. I don't know. Well, another episode where I recount my time studying abroad and how little actual studying I did. It was mostly just the abroad. It was mostly drinking. (laughs) To be completely I'm honest. Pretty sure that's a class in Ireland. I was 20, yeah. Uh, so whiskey as a drink has evolved since then, but the process of distilling is more or less the same. We've just kind of figured out how to do it on an industrial level, but the bones of it, same thing. So distilling whiskey. The basic ingredients of any whiskey are water, yeast, and some sort of grain. As I mentioned earlier, usually corn, barley, rye, wheat, or oats. And I would say even more, mostly corn and barley and rye. Uh, so with some grains, you're going to want to malt it, uh, which is basically steeping in a water just long enough to trick it into germinating. So barley is the most common that they'll use this process, but like rye and wheat can also That's be malted. That's what fucking malt is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to learn a lot of this, which I had no idea. Like prior to a week ago, I couldn't tell you the difference between like single malt and blended. But we will get into it. I assume malt is the, the same thing that makes like chocolate malts taste good, which is just crazy. <laughs> no. So in order to grow new shoots, the barley seeds will produce enzymes that begin to produce some to produce some of their starch into sugar. And you can't ferment anything without sugar. This goes all the way back to our baking episode. Yeast likes Doesn't it? sugar. Yes. So it can fart a bunch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, like, you want to get it wet enough so, like, it'll start to do this process, but you have to stop it before the grain itself uses all the sugar up trying to, like, actually grow into a plant. So you... Make it damp. Yep. You put it into some water, and then before it can get to that point, you have to drain it, and then you dry it. So here's where we get our first major difference in regional whiskeys. Scottish distillers will use peat fires to dry their barley, and Irish distillers will not. Okay. So that's where, like, peatiness comes into... Yes. Which I don't even know what that flavor profile is. I just know people say it a lot. It's kind of like a smoky flavor. I'm... Okay. Honestly, like I like I said, I'm more into Irish whiskeys than I am into Scotch, so I haven't had like too much experience tasting different scotches. Um, but it's kind of like just a smoky flavor. Peat is like a compressed, like we talked about in the Bog Bodies episode. Yeah. It's like yeah. Com- it's like a moss. It's compressed moss. Um, yeah. All, all of this is new to me. I prefer tequilas and liqueurs. So 
that's where I am. <laughs> yeah, so it's through this process that Scotch whiskeys get their peaty, smoky flavor. There are exceptions. There, there's a brand of whiskey called Connemara, which is a peated Irish whiskey. Uh, generally speaking, it's kind of how it shakes out today. Historically speaking, peat was the most accessible fuel in both Ireland and Scotland. So it's likely that at least like way back in the day, Irish whiskey also had some of the same smoky flavor. Um, then for whatever reason, they began to dry their barley with hot air and closed kilns, which kept it away from the peat. So Irish whiskeys kind of moved away from that. Scotch whiskeys still utilize it. My ice is melting too fast. Now it's mostly whiskey. That's fine. Gotta get them whiskey stones, dude. No. Oh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I live with a whiskey drinker. I know exactly why you shouldn't have whiskey stones, but. <laughs> so the grain, malted or otherwise, is then ground into a rough flour called a grist. This gets poured into a tub with hot water and becomes a mash. The mash gets agitated regularly, which encourages further conversion of starches to sugar. So you'll repeat this process three times with hotter and hotter water each time. Then the remaining water, known as the wort, is drained Ugh. away and sent into a fermenter. Why is you everything in this process so ickily named? Yeah, none of this is grist, mash, wort. Not, no. The leftover wash is usually held back and used in the first mashing of the next batch of grist. Sort of like a sourdough starter, but for booze. Yeah, no, that's a thing that comes up a lot. Um, also with uh, vinegars, uh, you take a little bit of the mother from vinegar because it has all them good bacteria, and it just kind of kickstarts the whole process. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so back in the fermenters, yeast is added to the wort, and yeast, as we learned in the baking episode, is a live bacteria that demands sustenance. <laughs> it's just a bunch of tiny Prince Joffreys. Uh, in this case, the sustenance is all those sugars that were created from the malting and the mashing process. So, like, so far, this is not too far removed from basic beer recipe. And if you're good at retaining information, you'll remember that three minutes ago I said original whiskey <laughs> was probably some old monk's attempt at distilling ale. It's not quite beer, though. The technical name for it is wash. And delicious. Yeah, delicious. Uh, the wash at this point in the distilling process has an alcohol content of about 9%. So like a very strong beer. Uh, to get it to a more respectable level, you need to remove a lot of the water content. And that's where distillation comes in. Okay. So you put the wash into a pot still, which is heated to a boil. And then the alcohol vaporizes and condenses into what's known as a low wine with an alcohol content of around 20%. And, and about what are we looking for with a... A finished whiskey. About 60 to 70. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you collect the low, li- low wine. You distill it a second time. If you're Irish, you're going to distill it a third time. Again, this is generally speaking, not every Irish whiskey is triple distilled. And there are distillers outside of Ireland who will distill it a third time. Not um, all Irish. We know. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from Kate Hopkins, which says, um, the Irish say that this helps take the edge of the alcohol. Everyone else says that it's simply the Irish showing off. It can be both. (laughs) Yeah. So once this whole process is done, it'll be around 60 to 70% alcohol. Distillers will also often discard the beginning and tail ends of each distillation run. That's known as like the heads and the tails. Uh uh Uh, They'll apparently they're like the first and the last will have some unwanted flavors and aromas. So you kind of just trash that. The rest, which is known as the heart, will go into cask barrels. Um, Yeah, this is actually pretty close to the process of um, making rum, which Mm -hmm. I I saw, but they start with uh, sugar cane and kind of a molasses, so very different flavor profile, but the process after that is pretty similar. Yeah. 
And fun story, the whiskey I'm drinking tonight has actually been aged in a rum barrel. Yeah. And I spilled some more. You can stop um, that. Well, when we were doing the, the distillery tour uh, for the, the rum distillery, um, Rulezon Distillery, if you would like to sponsor this podcast, I am almost out of rum. But they actually had like a trade going uh, but with them and a uh, whiskey uh, distillery. Was it Teeling's? I don't know. Okay. Um, because uh, either rum or whiskey, can you can only use the barrel once for it to be... Like classified as that specific thing, it might be rum. Okay, so um, yeah, whiskey. Yeah, well, I'm gonna about about to get into this, but essentially, like bourbon needs to be aged in a new barrel. All others will rebuy. Like most Irish whiskeys, will rebuy bourbon barrels that have been used once and reuse them again. Yeah, so it might be they were getting their uh, barrels from a bourbon distillery because it was right. New Orleans. So that kind of that would track. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Aging in barrels as a technique, this has been known to us for a while. Like, people probably figured it out because, you know, it was olden days and everything had to be transported by, like, a cart. <laughs> so it would take months to get anywhere. Um, and it was usually, like, if they had to transport it hundreds of miles away, it was usually months or years before, like, they would actually have a chance to taste it. And those who tried it found that not only were aged spirits smoother than the liquor straight from the still, but that the wood of the cask had given them additional flavor. So, like I said, most distilleries today will buy used bourbon casks from America because one of the requirements we placed on bourbon is that it has to be in a charred new oak container. Which I don't under... Uh, you'll probably explain, I expect. I mean, it's just, it's kind of just like that's kind of the... Because the whiskey will absorb flavors from the wood. Uh-huh. So having it in a brand new oak charred barrel is going to have a different taste than something that's been used a couple of times. Okay. Um, so I think it's just a matter of, like, preserving that specific flavor. Only arbitrarily related, but I was thinking about it. Um, in Kingsman 2, that was a bourbon distillery, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay. I've only seen Kingsman 2 once, but... I know that uh, a certain penis gallery got up the movie's ass because... Uh, Eggsy went out for a drink, and I guess most bourbon is made in dry counties... Yeah, actually, um, I can't remember what, I think it was like the Jim Beam Brewery, like Kate Hopkins went went to the Jim Beam Brewery, and then they went out to lunch in the same county, and like, they couldn't have a bourbon with lunch because the county was dry, but it was where they were making, like, Jim Beam. Yeah. Which is one of the biggest scotch, or not scotch, whiskey distilleries in the world. Anyway. It's like the, the whole fucking movie, like, a guy ate a burger made out of his friend, and that's the part that you picked to, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, bourbon distillers can only ever use their cask once, at which point they will resell it to one of their Irish or Scottish counterparts. Again, not everyone uses this method. Like, Macallan Scotch um, matures in oak sherry casks from Spain, and Glenfiddich has their own cooperage on site, so they actually make their own barrels. Um, and then some will age their whiskeys in several years and then finish it off in another. So you'll age it in, like, a bourbon barrel for three years, and then you'll throw it in a sherry barrel for a year to finish it off. Basically, like, it's just people putting their own flair on it. Yeah. It would be a while before this is actually standard practice. Like, it wasn't even until 1915 that it became mandatory to age your whiskey. Ew, unaged whiskey? Yeah. Uh, today, that's considered grain alcohol. Your Everclears, etc. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. So any whiskey you're going to drink is going to get about 60 to 80% of its flavor from the cask that it ages in. And the longer it sits, the more flavor it extracts. 
Uh, that isn't to say you can just age the whiskey indefinitely and it'll get more and more flavorful. Like if it absorbs too much of the cask, you're just going to get a whiskey that tastes like wood. Yeah, and it gets there's diminishing returns with that. Yeah. And then there's also the problem of eva- evaporation. So every year a whiskey sits in a cask, as much as like 2% of that alcohol content is going to evaporate. Uh, this is known very charmingly as the angel's share. Because <laughs> it's the, the whiskey the angels drink. So at some point, so much will have gone to the angels that they will all be smashed. And what's left in the cask will have lost so much of, so much of its alcohol content That'll cease to be whiskey entirely and end up something much closer to a liqueur. Okay. So there are some like 50 to 60 year old whiskeys. Like they're possible, but they usually need to be fixed to get some of the alcohol content back into the acceptable range for what you would consider a whiskey. I'm not entirely positive on what the process is. It's just there's a process to it. So like whiskey, you'll find in old shipwrecks. Like you can technically bring that back up to the surface and modify it so you can actually, it's actually drinkable. I was just thinking about that. Like, the alcohol that you find in shipwrecks can't still be good. Unless it's, like, rum, maybe, but even at that point. Yeah, maybe. Like, I mean, I think it naturally kind of preserves itself, but it's not going to be, like, you can't just pop open the bottle and drink it. Like, you need, some modifications need to be made. Evaporation also accounts for the higher cost of aged whiskeys beyond, like, simple supply and demand of people Assume 21-year-old whiskeys are better, so they will pay more for them. Pay more for them. Like a cask of whiskey that's been aged for three years is still going to be about 96% full. But a cask that's been aged 12 years is only going to be 85% full. So you're just going to get less bottles out of a cask that's been aged longer. So I mean, I guess that's why it's more, quote-unquote, rare. Yeah. Well, air quotes around rare. I mean, plenty of people will age their whiskey for 12 years so like i bought a 12 year age whiskey when i was in ireland at the jameson distillery um and it was it was like 60 euro which is not that expensive but like if you go to like 21 and up it's gonna be more expensive likewise it's been sitting in a warehouse for over a decade so it's not making the distiller any money while it's aging like factor in whatever you're paying to rent the warehouse it's actually costing you money. So they kind of need to recoup those pro- those costs as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just like people artificially inflating the value of aged whiskeys. Like there is some in the process of making it, they just cost more to make. Well, I have to assume that they also don't make as much because of the fact that it has to sit around for a while and not make them money. So right. yeah. why fill 70 barrels with whiskey that's going to sit there for 20 years when you could fill 10? And Right. And like most people ain't gonna be that picky like there's definitely a market for those like rare aged whiskeys but like very small percentage of the population compared to the people who are gonna go to the liquor store and buy a, buy a bottle of like three-year-old jack daniels and chug it in a weekend i think the most i've ever spent on a bottle of alcohol was 60 dollars, and i've had it for nigh upon a year now <laughs> Yeah, I think I spent uh, $40 on the whiskey I'm drinking now because I wanted a special occasion whiskey to drink while I uh, recorded You realize this. we can't do reimbursements from the <laughs> network, right? Like, that's not... No, I did it by myself because I like this brand and I wanted to support it. But I'm going to have to buy a new bottle soon because I'm going to drink most of it tonight. Oh, boy. We're on, like, page three. Oh, God. <laughs> so... Most modern whiskeys will also go through a vatting process, which is really just a fancy way to say it's 
splendid. I think it's called vetting, and it's when they check all of their contacts and all of the news stories that may be written about them just to get ahead of anything. It's to make sure your vice president isn't secretly gay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's to make sure that your whiskey is Elizabeth Warren. So there's a lot more history behind this, which we'll get into in like just a bit. Um, but generally speaking, you don't just empty whiskey from a cask straight into a bottle. Different whiskeys from different casks will usually be combined to achieve a particular blend and that is reduced in strength using denatured alcohol? Demineralized water. Oh, good, Um, because denatured alcohol is used to make perfume and it's really icky. No, thanks. Um, A small amount of caramel might be added. This doesn't necessarily change the flavor. It's more about keeping color consistent from one batch to the the next. caramel coloring or actual caramel? Caramel coloring. I think it's... It was described to me as caramel, caramel coloring, I think is generally about what it is. Yeah. So like every cask is different and the age of the wood, the wood, the number of times it's been used, the length of maturation, all of that can affect the final color. So like just to keep it consistent between batches because you don't want weird like colored Jack Daniels bottles, like it's just you're going to add some coloring to it. Okay. So whiskey stamps will say this is like a very bad thing, but most people do it. Yeah, oh, it, so burpy. <laughs> Emily, why, are, why am I doing this? <sighs> Some whiskey will also be chill filtered before bottling, which is just, it's a process that keeps it from going cloudy in the bottle. It's to filter out the impurities and make it that nice, beautiful brown whiskey. Is this how you felt when I drank that entire bowl of punch and then had to go sit quietly in your apartment for the evening? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen after we finish this. I'm like mostly done with my third glass. I'm going to need to pour myself a fourth soon. Do you know how long it's been since I've drinking more drinking? <laughs> since I've had more than one glass of whiskey? Just let me know when we hit like page 12 and I'll go eat an edible and maybe, we, oh no, we have to do the mini. Never mind. Oh God. I will also say I am drinking straight whiskey like I'm having it on rocks, but, like, so there's ice and water involved, but I'm not drinking, like, whiskey sours. I'm just drinking straight whiskey. This might be going a little smoother if you'd had just a f- one old-fashioned. No, thank you. I don't need extra sugar in my gut right now. <laughs> just wait for the mini soda. I'm about to tell you, it does not matter. <laughs> See, this is just something, like, my uncle told me once. It's like, if you don't mix the drinks, you don't get the hangover because there's That's no sugar. Super not true. But again, for the mini. <laughs> we'll get into it. Okay. Uh, so once people got the hang of distilling, it became a very popular solution for processing surplus grain crops. So say you're a farmer living in Ireland or Scotland during the Middle Ages. The market for your grain is really what you can use yourself and like people who live a reasonable distance away. You're not going to be exporting no, this. Yeah. Yeah. So transporting it somewhere else isn't an option, and you can't store it for very long because it'll rot. So farmers begin distilling their surplus grain, and they got whiskey in return, which is a huge win-win for everybody involved. Yes, well, maybe except the farmer's wives, but... (laughs) Uh, It should be noted that the whiskey being distilled at this time was probably closer to gin than anything we would recognize as a modern whiskey like it was disgusting yeah it was rarely aged and they would like they throw in stuff like thyme mint and anise to like flavor it so i don't know i might drink like a slightly minty clear alcohol i mean it it sounds good to me but anyway people in ireland loved it (laughs) (laughs) and as it became more popular there the english started to ask themselves 
how can we make money off of this? That sounds about right. See, at this time, the Ireland was already under control of the English, and you can't really talk, unfortunately, about the history of whiskey or really any alcohol uh, without talking about taxes. So, delicious. Buckle up. How many pages do you have on taxes? Many. Oh, God. <laughs> so, the first act regulating inns and taverns that were selling whiskey was passed as early as 1964 by the Irish Parliament, which is really just... Did you say 1964? 13, 1634 numbers. Oh. Uh, so the Irish Parliament was really just an extension of England's. Um, and they also didn't really have the adequate resources to enforce this, so the taxes were rarely collected. Like, all it took to get out of paying the tax was to pull a really big knife that you kept behind the bar when the taxman showed up. And if you told him to fuck off, there really wasn't much you could do about it. Uh, so it's kind of like wearing masks in America. Yeah. So not successful. Uh, in 1661, the British government switched tactics. They decided to start charging an excise task, tax on the whiskey itself. So excise ta- taxes or basically any tax you place on domestically produced goods. So, like, this is the thing we do today, usually booze and cigarettes, when you want to discourage people from buying them. I think it, they also do it with They will do weed. it from with marijuana, yes, today, and where it is legal. I love how you call it marijuana. Look, I have smoked pot exactly twice. I'm surprised it's twice. <laughs> I know, I'm a square. Just wait till you come visit sometime. <laughs> So there were several loopholes to this, not least of which was that registering as a distiller with the excise board was a completely voluntary exercise. Uh, So, like, this is the trend for, like, the next century and the next after that. It's like the British government implements a task, implements a tax, the distillers in Ireland and eventually Scotland when it comes under English control. They exploit every single loophole they can find. And then the British try and outsmart them by enacting new taxes and new regulations and all the really good distillers go underground. So like, like physically or metaphorically? Metaphorically. So one good example of this is in the 18th century, one of the schemes Britain used to tax whiskey distillers was determining they'd go to round, they'd determine how many batches your still could produce in a year, known as charges, and then they'd collect taxes on that number. So then the distillers that had actually bothered to register were now incentivized to increase their production because any batches any batches they distilled beyond that number would be tax-free. And that would make them a lot of money. So the British, not happy that this whiskey was escaping duty, would respond every year by upping the number of charges, at which point the distillers would increase production even more. And it went on and on like this to the point where registered distillers were doing some pretty we're going to some pretty terrible lengths to produce as much whiskey as possible. Um, so one of the things was they would heat their stills even hotter to make the alcohol evaporate faster. But this also made the mash froth. And that slowed down the process. It kind of clog up the still. Their solution was to add soap. Why not? What? Uh, so it didn't take p- people long to figure out that the legal product, which was at the time known as like Parliament whiskey, because it was under Parliament law, oh my God. Uh, was probably going to be terrible. So they would go ahead and they would buy their whiskey from illegal distillers instead, of course. Uh, so by the 1820s, there were only 20 distilleries in Ireland that were officially recognized by the government in thousands of illegal stills. Like, one of the guys we're going to talk about, he was a tax guy at the time, and he counted, like, 800 stills on, like, a single peninsula. (laughs) (laughs) 
just like the thousands of numbers is because I don't have a figure for it. It was a just lot. In case anyone thought that like moonshiners were <laughs> unique. Yeah. All this finally ended with the 1823 Excise Act, which enacted which was enacted all across Great Britain, including Ireland and Scotland. It raised the penalties for illegal distilling and simplified the tax structure. So instead of being taxed on like the size of the still or the quantity of the wash or any of that, like distillers were charged a basic license fee and taxed on the amount of whiskey they produced. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Duties were halved and with these burdens lifted, it actually became economically feasible to be a registered distillery. So by 1835, Ireland had 93 legal distilleries and the popularity of their drink. Like, Irish whiskey was in such high demand at this time that it it outsold Scotch whiskey in Scotland. I'm sure the Scots love that. Yeah, having a great time. But Scotland, under the same laws, was experiencing a similar boom. So, like, in just two years after the new law was enacted, 125 new distilleries sprang up in Scotland. (sighs) Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Very drunk, Emily. (laughs) All right. So during this period, there came a major new innovation in the distillation of whiskey, the column still, which is patented by Irishman Aeneas Coffee in 1830. So That's before, a very good name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so before this, the most widely used vessel for distilling was a copper pot still. And while they were capable of producing some very good full-flavored whiskeys, they had their drawbacks. Uh, first, it's just incredibly inefficient, like... Pot stills could only be used to distill one batch at a time. The still would then have to be filled, distilled, emptied, and recharged, which slows the whole process down, even as they're learning to finally scale up processes like mashing, malting, and mashing and fermenting. You can only distill as much as you can hold in the pot still at any one time. And then having to reheat the still every time means you're using more fuel, more labor. Constant cooldown and reheating also means more wear and tear. And then there's the danger of charring the solid matter in the wash, which, of course, ruins the spirit. Of course. Yeah. You don't want shitty matter in your wash. (laughs) So coffee's patent still allowed for the continuous distillation rather than having to distill your whiskey one batch at a time. It, It wasn't the first to be invented, but it was the most efficient. So it relied on two columns. So the first column, essentially, it behaves as, like, one big stack of pot stills. Like, you feed the wash into the top, and it descends from one level to the next. And each time, it passes through the series of perforated plates. So you get hot steam to rise up from the bottom. And when it meets the wash, the wash gets vaporized, which allows the alcohol vapors to separate out. And everything else just kind of continues down to the bottom of the still. That does sound more efficient. Yeah. I'm not entirely positive. <laughs> I have wrapped my brain around how this works, but I like, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? The alcohol vapors you get from that process, they are sent into the second column where it circulates until it condenses at the required strength. So basically, as long as you are feeding wash into the still, you can be distilling whiskey. So it's just, it's just a continuous, way more efficient. Yeah. Um, into Today, most of the whiskey on the market is produced in a similar column still. A little more advanced, but essentially the same process. So despite being patented by an Irishman, the two columns still actually didn't take off in Ireland right away. Like, they didn't totally shun the invention. Like, many actually embraced the new column still, but the, like, of the larger distillers, including John Jameson, yes, that John Jingleheimer Jameson. Schmidt? Yes. Uh, they, they weren't interested. Uh, the Scots definitely were, though. In between 1840 and 1850, production of Scotch whiskey rose from 1 million gallons to 5 million. So 
So around this time, uh, the Great Britain repealed an 1815 act known as the Corn Laws. So prior to this, all in... <laughs> Corn Laws? Corn Laws. So this is this is a response to the Irish famine. Um, you know, people is were Is this going to be mean-spirited? It sounds like it's going to be mean-spirited. Not necessarily, but I also don't think it was as efficient as they wanted it to be uh, or as effective as they wanted it to be. Basically, they're just like, before this... All imported corn had to be taxed because they wanted to keep domestic grains competitive. Uh, but Ireland was starving to death. Yeah, and, that was a whole thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, and once that was lifted, like corn from America just like flooded into the market and it was cheap as fuck. Uh, and it was grabbed up by distillers in both Ireland and Scotland. So like cheap corn started to replace what was more expensive barley. Whiskey production continued to explode, especially from distillers who had embraced the column still, which soon outnumbered and easily outproduced traditional pot stills. New laws also allowed for the vatting of whiskey, like as we talked about earlier, the blending of whiskey from two different charges or stills, which meant producers could now cut their more expensive, like barley whiskey with cheaper grain alcohol and sell it for the same price. All right. Yeah. So Scotland's first vatted whiskey was Usher's Old Vatted Glenlivet which is introduced in 1854. Why does that name sound familiar? It's still around today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so for many years, into well into the 20th century, like there was some debate over wh- whether or not blended spirits could even be categorized as whiskey. And it was a whole thing. I'm it's not the g- kind of whiskey that they were drinking in The Mummy. That's why it sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> I got there. I got there. And blended whiskey, um, the law eventually came down on the side of the blenders, on, on the side of the blenders, and today blended whiskeys make up about 90% of the market. I am drinking a blended whiskey right now. And this is where you see the distinction between blended and single malt. So single malt whiskeys are whiskeys that were made from one distillery, from one malted grain, and it isn't blended from whiskey from any other casks or any other distillers. So it's very... Straightforward, but like like I said, most of it is blended. Every whiskey on my bar cart I checked is blended whiskey. Single malt is like for your fancy fancy boys, right? It's fancy, like the the twelve year age single malt I got in uh, County Cork was a aged single malt. Okay, and it cost me a little bit more, but it was like my special whiskey. <laughs> Look at your texts. I am afraid. Nope, don't be. That's that's a penis. It is a penis. Sadie has a penis in her hand. <laughs> what is it supposed to be? It, I think it's a penis. I think it's supposed to be a penis. Okay. I cannot see a world where that's anything else. Um, The Taj Mahal. No. It's a Russian building. I almost had her sit in on this episode like a fucking ACLU legal observer at a protest. <laughs> to make sure I didn't die? Just to make sure we didn't say anything we can't take back. <laughs> so blended whiskey from column stills obviously had a number of advantages over traditional pot still whiskey. So not only could it be produced at a faster rate, but the ability to blend like the barley whiskey, which was taxed with cheaper grain alcohol, which was not meant lower overhead costs. And because it's 1800s and there are no laws, Many of these cheaper alternatives are being passed off as Irish whiskey no matter where or how they are being distilled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I got a burp and stretch. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, this is the most drunk I have been since 
the last wedding I attended. <laughs> that was a long time ago. We it was haven't a while. been able to have weddings for a while. Uh, so around the same time, French winemakers were facing a crisis. So a type of AFED, which is unintentionally imported from the Americas, completely devastated the crop of the country's wine regions and the entire like the entire french wine industry like collapsed i mean that really says a lot about how the americas were ruining the french wine industry even before like uh sonoma was the thing right it's always america's fault so like wine producers begin to shudder and that meant other products that depended on that wine like such as brandy which is distilled wine took a hit and by the late 1870s, brandy and especially cognac would cognac. I'm not going to. You know cognac. what I mean. Yes. Thank you. Which is brandy, but like from a specific region of France, uh, it became almost impossible to find. But what were men in smoking jackets supposed to drink? This was the problem. So like the British upper class at the time, they were super into brandy. And once they could no longer find it, they had to turn elsewhere. So like. Irish whiskey production quadrupled, and Scot- Scotch whiskey experienced a similar boom. Like, in fact, in fact, a lot of the big brands in Italy, the Glenlivet, the Johnny Walkers, like, they all got their start during this period. I always assumed that Scotch was fancier than whiskey, but it sounds like that's not the case. No, it's just, it's from Scotland. But we'll get into, like, why it's kind of taken over the world compared to Irish whiskey, which did not. Anyway. Like, whiskey soon became the new drink of choice, and they kind of gravitated toward the blended Scotch whiskeys. So, like, Queen Victoria, who, like, had a castle up in Scotland, like, she was a big fan of Scotch whiskey, which probably had something to do with it, because everyone wanted to do what Queen Victoria was doing. If I remember correctly, she's also responsible for a lot of poor beauty choices during that time period. Yeah, like, white wedding dresses, that was Queen Victoria. Like, she Oh, she's that. the Christmas tree lady, too. Yeah. Well, her husband <laughs> was the Christmas tree lady. Because he was German, yeah. As I've learned in the movie The Young Victoria, which, have you seen The Young that? Victoria? It's Emily Blunt and some guy. It's Emily Blunt and some guy describes <laughs> every movie Fiend. Emily Blunt has been in. <laughs> it's Rupert Fiend who plays the asshole in Pride and Prejudice. But he's, me and my friend, so we saw this movie when it came out when we were in Ireland, my friend Raylene and I. And we called him Prince Tight Pants. Because he wore a very tight pants. Any relation to Crazy Lips from Luther? No. (laughs) But good reference. I love her too. That's what I call her now. Yes, because that's what me and my friends are. Her name is like Ruth Wilson or something. She's a nice looking lady. I love Ruth Wilson so much, but she's Crazy Lips. She she was in that horror movie directed by the guy that was in. Uh, uh, you are the pretty blonde. thing that lives in the house. Or yeah. I am the pretty thing that lives in the house. Yeah. Oh, that's a good movie. Um, yeah, okay. the director is uh, Anthony Perkins' son. Yeah, he's the same guy who did um, Black Coat's Daughter, which I prefer yeah. to You are the I am the pretty thing who lives in the house. Just because nothing happens. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, <laughs> it's very atmospheric. Like, you yeah. gotta be, yeah. But I, I like old houses. Um so that that played a lot, and I'm still and, uh, just Lucy. What's her face is in it. She's also the the lady who's dating the guy that was in Mr. Robot. Wow. Yes. Okay. And she is also in Black Coat's Daughter. The problem I had with Black Coat's Daughter is I am always on the fence about uh, Emma Roberts. 
She's good in that that movie. She's good in that. She was god fucking awful in American Horror Story, and it kind of just soured the whole thing. That we Which are not is even. Fair. I have not watched it, so I have not had. Coven like... is terrible, except for everything that took place in the before times. Uh, whiskey. We're talking about whiskey. whiskey. We're talking about Queen Victoria. <laughs> oh my god, so on track. Okay, so Queen Victoria. Super big fan of Scotch whiskey. But also just in general, like the highlands of Scotland, widely romanticized by the British elites. So obviously the spirits that are coming from that region are going to be more favored. The banshees are fine in Ireland, but the spirits from Scotland just mwah. So Dublin distillers, they feel understandably threatened by these blended Scotch whiskeys. They launch a whole propaganda campaign against blended whiskeys. And they kind of push this idea that like, the producers couldn't be trusted. They were ripping you off by blending their whiskey and that the grain spirits they were adding were somehow dangerous. Sounds exactly like something white dudes would do. Yes. The thing is, distillers and dealers of whiskey have been messing with messing with whiskey for ages. So like they would throw in stuff like sugar or pineapple juice to cover the taste. They added tobacco to lower quality whiskey to make it look more expensive. Like there were people putting sulfuric acid into whiskeys before this. Like, We did not know what we were doing in the no. 1800s. All this to say, like, it was generally accepted that distillers and dealers were messing with whiskey. So everyone was kind of like, nah, that's okay. Big old truck. They just kept drinking their blended whiskeys. Like, it had no effect. God damn it. Every boom has a bust. And the whiskey crash started in earnest in 19... In, sorry. Like I said, dyslexic with my numbers. The whiskey crash is happening in your apartment right now. Okay, 1898. It was discovered that a Scottish blending firm called Pattinson's had been buying up their own stock to artificially inflate its value. It was like... You mean like the White House bought all those... Or Fox News? Someone bought all those copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book. Yes. It was an old-timey Enron, essentially. So they'd buy their stock, they would artificially inflate its value, and then they would take out lines of credit using their company's value, which was totally, like, fabricated. And then they went bankrupt. They were, like, a half million pounds in debt, and they defaulted on their loans. Uh, they took the whole whiskey industry with them. Essentially, like, the price of whiskey crashed, like, trust in distilleries plummeted, banks began calling in lines of credit, which crippled other distilleries, like, ability to expand. Just um, one fucking guy. Yeah. And meanwhile, like, the AFID thing is over. The wine industry is rebranding or rebounding. Brandy makes a comeback. And then it's World War One. Then it's American Prohibition. And then at I mean, the same I, time. I really liked Brandy and Moesha and uh, the Cinderella she did it. I don't think she's had a comeback yet. And I'm really. <laughs> Brandy the drink, Emily. If I don't say dumb shit every couple minutes, people forget I'm on the podcast. I am talking a lot, aren't I? <laughs> well, it's your episode. So, okay. So, crash. Wine is back. World War II. World War I happens. Then it's American Prohibition. And then the Irish War for Independence happens. And then the Irish Civil War happens. Because <laughs> Ireland is really fucked up at this time. In Irish distillers, they're still hanging on to their pot stills. So they're being outproduced. By the, um, this company called the Distillers Company Limited, which is basically a Scotch production monopoly that has bought up all these distillers in Scotland and in Ireland. Uh, they built their success in the column still, and they also like would just buy up troubled distilleries and then close them down. So they would eliminate their competition by buying them up. So by 1932, 
There are only five distillers left in the Republic of Ireland. Blended whiskeys completely dominated the marketplace, and most of the whiskey being sold was scotch. Jesus. Yeah. That's why scotch became a thing. I'm going to finish the glass. One second. This is glass number three for anyone who's keeping track. That's glass number three down. Um, I don't <laughs> feel like going into the kitchen to get another icicles. Icicles? <laughs> Ice-, Ice cubes. <laughs> If it makes you feel any better, I called the toaster oven the warm box the other day. Sober. Okay. So I'm pouring myself a fourth glass of whiskey. I'm adding some water. Because I can't drink it just straight, straight. I will die. I'm also going to take a drink of water. Because it's an oh wow. I'm just going to play like elevator music uh, for a couple seconds every time you have to take a pee break. (laughs) (laughs) That would be appropriate. I'm okay right now. We're like that song from Community that... That's not... Yeah, that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I got my fourth glass of whiskey. No ice. Just water. We're going to back up a bit. We got to take a trip all the way across the Atlantic because whiskey... To Kokomo. <laughs> no. Okay. Whiskey was never just exclusively the domain of the Scotch and the Irish. So... The Scotch? The Scot. The Scots. I actually wrote the scotch in my notes. Checks out. Checks out. It doesn't matter. So not that they weren't a major influence. Like, whiskey came to North America along with scotch and Irish immigrants. Uh, The difference was they incorporated grains that grew more efficiently than barley. So, like, rye and wheat, but mostly corn. Because as we stated, corn is king. (laughs) And you would know that. That new new Beyonce album, right. (laughs) You would know that if you've ever seen The West Wing. I have. I just haven't finished it. It's there's No, this is definitely a, a season episodes. six. King Corn is the episode where they're in Iowa for the Iowa primary. Iowa caucuses, sorry. Uh God, remember when the system worked on on TV, but anyways. Corn. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing so hard. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all right. Much like their predecessors over in England and associated colonies, farmers on the American frontier found that the best way to make use of their surplus crop was to distill it and trade it for other goods. So it was almost like it was more of a currency than it was like a product. Yeah, I mean, that's how rum got started, too. It's just a way to take care of extra sugar cane. Yeah. So so people on the frontier, both in like the U.S. and Canada, they drank so much. They drank a lot. Uh, Can- Canadians drinking? Canadians drinking. Sarah. I don't get nearly as much into Canada as I should because it's kind of a lot of it overlaps with America, but... Well, no one can get into Canada right now. (sighs) No, they don't let us in. Trump officially... Trump efficiently cut the borders because no one wants to let us in anywhere. Uh, I I mean, I think there's like two places in the Middle East that are like, (laughs) fuck it. I don't care. But yeah. Yeah. Rum had been the drink of choice throughout most of the revolution. Holy shit, I just took a drink out of whiskey, and without the ice, it's very strong. Please, go get an icicle from the kitchen, my no. dude. <laughs> Shut up, Emily. <laughs> so, whiskey had been the drink of choice throughout the revolution, but whiskey soon overtook it because it was cheap and plentiful, especially in the frontier, where fresh water was rare and milk didn't keep. So if you wanted to stay hydrated, your best options were usually whiskey or beer. So... Farmers would take it with them into the fields. Parents would send their kids off to school with a shot. In general, stores had an open cask customers could drink from as they shopped. 
That is, is disgusting. Honestly, like in pandemic times, yes, it's horrifying. But like it makes sense from like an 1830s point of view where like you just want people to buy shit. And if they're a little drunk, they'll they'll be good customers. Do you know what I miss? Those big barrels with pickles. <laughs> I miss those a lot. I'm sorry. Where are you getting barrels of pickles? <laughs> You've never. Uh, so like. I know dis I don't know if Disneyland had like loose pickles. They might have been wrapped. But like Yeah. There were like stores, like convenience stores were What are you talking about? Barrel of pickles. Hold on. I'm not crazy. In what universe were you buying loose pickles? I'm not making this up. Loose pickles. Yeah, it's just like a wooden barrel filled with pickles. It's like a cracker barrel. No, it. Uh, God damn it. I know I'm not making this up. I didn't just have like a fever dream of loose pickles. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just the concept of loose pickles in a barrel is I'm okay, losing my so mind. I found like an old timey picture, but like I remember picking a pickle out of the barrel at like a uh, like a country store in my lifetime. I'm sending you a picture. I don't want it. <laughs> this is sepia toned. It's old timey. Okay, here we go. Here's a more modern one. I never want to see this ever again. This is disgusting. I mean it's like the loose pepperonis. <laughs> what? Where are you where no. are you finding loose pepperonis? No, like at gas stations and stuff, they have the the metal, uh, not the metal, the plastic like containers that have the pepperoni sticks in them. Is this a West Coast thing? Apparently, like it's a plastic container and it has like a bunch of like those like teriyaki pepperoni sticks, and you just like pick one and then you pay for it, and it's loose, like it's not in packaging. I'm sorry, I just loose pepperoni. <laughs> Emily, I can. You can't drop this on me right now when I'm this drunk. I'm ready to move on. <laughs> I guess. I Just gaslighting me about pickle barrels. <laughs> this is not a thing I've ever experienced. All right. The majority of whiskey on the market at this time, in like the frontier times, it would have been an unaged white spirit. So it would have been still from corner rye with the most prominent being rye blends produced in western Pennsylvania. Uh, so the two-column coffee stills made their way across the Atlantic as well, and as whiskey production became quicker and more profitable, it left the farm and became an industrial endeavor. And with the advent of railroads, distillers could ship their product to markets all across the country. So the whiskey industry in the United States thrived throughout the 19th century, but of course we can't talk about American whiskey without talking about prohibition. No! <laughs> God, that was America's, well, not our biggest mistake. We made some pretty fucking big mistakes. But there's the, the, I like, would say our biggest mistake was most recent, but who did it benefit? No one. Okay. <laughs> so many bottles. Okay. <laughs> the 18th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified on January 16th, 1919. And it banned the manufacturing, sale, and transportation of liquor in the United States as well as its importation. Fun fact. Andrew J. Folstead, who was then chair of the House Judiciary Committee and representative who helped push this legislation through contest, was from my own town, through Congress. I can 
speak words. Uh, he was from my hometown. This is oh, the only. This is your fucking fault. Yeah, sorry. This is the only interesting fact about my hometown. And someday I will go back to Granite Falls and I will drink a beer on Andrew J. Volstead's porch. Well, see, now you just need to become more famous than him. <laughs> so, oh, when Prohibition was enacted, breweries and distilleries throughout the United States shuttered. Some moved to Mexico or Canada, but because making booze illegal didn't make anyone want to stop drinking for some reason, like, it kind of... It, it almost became something people did on the slide. Yeah. So there are really two main ways you can get your hands on something to drink during this time. Like, you could get it from moonshine runners making homebrew liquor in their basements. Moonshine is terrifying, by the way, just as a concept and a beverage. Yeah, no, thank you. Or you could buy it from smugglers bringing it from distilleries just across the Canadian border. So Canada, not surprisingly, did very well at this time. <laughs> they had briefly, like, Canada had their own kind of prohibition movement, um, but it had only ever been enacted on a regional basis. And even then, like, the provinces that voted to go dry, they kind of just gave up after a couple of years. It's kind of like dry counties, like, where it was a case-by-case -case basis, yeah. which I don't understand why we still have dry counties, too. Like, we do, right? We do, yeah, especially in the South. So we could do, like, a, a remake of Smokey and the Bandit, and it wouldn't be completely outdated. <laughs> no. uh, Scottish distilleries initially took a hit, but once they saw how well Canada was doing, they basically they just started exploiting a loophole that allowed for heavily peated malts to be imported and sold for, quote-unquote, medicinal purposes. Of course. Yeah, and they actually saw an increase in sales during Prohibition, so... Weird. They did fine. Uh, so by 1933, prohibition had been repealed, but then it had already had a devastating effect on American distillers. So some, including Buffalo Trace, which you mentioned earlier, still around, they had been able to exploit the same medicinal loophole, but most had been forced to shut their doors. So multi-million companies shuttered overnight, and even after prohibition ended, like, you can't just restart your whiskey distillery. No, it's it's quite difficult on account of having to age things. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the law had been repealed in the middle of the Great Depression, which was an, an entirely different problem. But, yeah, like, whiskeys need time to age. So, by, like, by the time any American product was mature enough to go to market, it was World War II. <laughs> which, arguably, everyone kind of needed a drink at that point. Yeah, but, like, it's pro production was stalled, like, redirected to the war effort. You were making alcohol for, like, other reasons you would use alcohols rather kind than of like how distilleries are making hand sanitizer right exactly. now exactly so many distillers that had existed before prohibition they never recovered and this created an opening for smaller distilleries and especially those making bourbon to reestablish themselves so like leading up to prohibition <laughs> rye i just can hear myself being super drunk rye had been america's drink of choice but like by the time Prohibition happened and had ended, like, the taste had changed. Like, bourbon surged in popularity, and once the war had ended, like, 38 bourbon distillers reopened, another 15 opened for the first time. So, today we kind of think of bourbon as, like, the quintessential American drink, but the truth, I mean, for the, for the most part, it's very, I mean, it is, as most things we consider very American, very I would Southern and country. Beer to be the most quintessential American drink. I mean, also true. Uh, <laughs> the truth is, like, 
Bourbon, as we know it today, wasn't even really a thing until after the war. They're pretty sure the name bourbon specifically comes from the times when we were all shipping our whiskey up the river, like before there were railroads. Uh And bourbon is a term during that time specifically referred to a whiskey that came from the docks of Bourbon, Kentucky. Okay. Um, And it wasn't until the late 1940s that the United States even, like, set out guidelines for what makes whiskey a bourbon. So, like, what specifically do you have to do to be bourbon just compared to, like, whiskey? Um, And that is, it is any American whiskey made from a mash containing at least 51% corn. It is distilled to 80% alcohol by volume. And it is aged in a newly charred oak barrel. Um, Which, ironically, not ironically, I don't know. This was a requirement added with some encouragement by a few congressmen that represented states with timber companies and cooperage bills. Ah, yeah. So nothing really to do with, like, what makes bourbon bourbon and just, like, hey, we should make them use all new barrels. So there is constantly a demand for I have to imagine the Pacific Northwest was partially responsible for that on account of all of our timber. Probably can't hurt. Um, So that doesn't mean... (laughs) There wasn't a bourbon tradition before, like, these laws were passed. It was just that it wasn't really codified. Like, there was a recipe, but it could be altered. And, like, a lot of what we would consider bourbon in the 19th century probably wouldn't qualify as bourbons today. It's kind of like when we were talking about pizza and, like, pizza in its tradition existed. And then, you know, at some point a bunch of dudes got together and were like, no, this is exactly what you have to do to make a pizza. Exactly. So regardless, in 1964, Congress declared bourbon as America's native spirit. Sure. Okay, I guess. Sure. I, I, mean, I like a good bourbon. I like them in old fashions, but like, I mean, I shouldn't talk. I'm an Irish whiskey fan, clearly, as I'm drinking four glasses of it. Drinking. <laughs> we are an educational podcast, ma'am. Shut up. Uh, today, the top-selling American whiskey in the world is... Yes. Top selling whiskey in the world is Jack Daniels. Yes, correct. Uh, Jack Daniels is not a bourbon. It's a Tennessee whiskey, which meets all the criteria of a bourbon and is legally defined as a bourbon. But don't tell anyone who makes Jack Daniels that because apparently that's the worst insult ever. I, I want to say I have a, a Jack Daniels on our bar right now, but it's the cherry flavored. Oh. Yeah, I thought it would be good. I must prefer the apple Jack Daniels if I'm going to be drinking a flavored whiskey. I had a cousin who bragged to me one time. He went to my brother's and my brother was still living in Denver and my brother let him have some Gentleman Jack. And while I was buying the bourbon, or not the bourbon, the whiskey that I'm drinking tonight, like I came across Gentleman Jack while I was shopping for whiskey. And Gentleman Jack is not that expensive. <laughs> It's like no, forty I, bucks a bottle. Yeah, I, which is what I paid for this whiskey. Well, this which cherry I just fucking spilled again. God damn it! No, this cherry whiskey just tastes like like flat soda. Yeah, it's fine. Right. Like you can drink a lot of it. It's fine. Yeah, I'm sure it tastes good. Nah, it's kind of that <laughs> fake cherry taste. Like I said, I much prefer the apple flavored. Yeah, I feel like it's better not to buy like the flavored whiskeys than just like take a general standard whiskey and flavor it yourself yeah i could have just put it in cherry coke like if we're gonna be real about it uh anyway tennessee whiskey is for all intents and purposes it's a bourbon um but it's produced in tennessee and has been charcoal filtered through something called the lincoln county process honestly like it's more of a marketing thing than it is okay any just to make it stand out process yeah okay fine which is fine 
Honestly, like make yourself stand out. We're almost done. But one last thing, because I'm not done talking about Irish whiskey yet. Uh, in 1966, there were only three distilleries still operating in the Republic of Ireland. So there was John Jameson and Son, Cork, John Jameson and Son, Cork Distilleries, and John Power and Sons. And they like eventually figured out like we can't survive unless we merge together. So they merged to become Irish Irish Distillers Limited. <sighs> Emily. Don't worry, I'm talking for the next one. <laughs> they modernized their production techniques and they started blending their whiskey. Fucking finally. As, like two like centuries two, after yeah, I was they say figured that out. 200 years after it became a thing. So this kept them alive, but like even after the merger, their share of the international market stood at something like 1%. So like Irish whiskey was just not a thing in the 60s. Uh, they eventually made this deal with Canadian-based Seagrams, which... Ooh, ooh. Yeah. So it's more complicated than this, but essentially they took partial ownership and IDL in exchange for their Bushmills distillery in Northern Ireland. Bushmills, very good Irish whiskey. Anyway, like, because Seagram's had this international reach, it opened some new markets for Irish whiskey, and that wasn't, like, it was enough to get them attention. Um, but many of the Ideals brands, including Jameson, which is my personal favorite, like, I'm I'm a Jameson stan. I'm not going to lie. You it's are very basic. 32 years old. You should not be saying stan. <laughs> Shut up. I love a good Jameson. Like, the, the fancy whiskey I had at my bar for a long time was a Jameson, and then I finished it. On March 17th, 2020, because we had just gone into lockdown and it felt like a really good time to finish off that bottle of 60 euro whiskey I'd bought in Ireland. Yeah, I'm saving the last like couple drinks of my favorite rum for, I don't know, sometime in November. Yeah, that's that's probably good. So like many of these brands of Irish whiskey, including Jameson, would later be bought out by French-based Pernod Ricard. So it turns out today, most of the Irish whiskey on the market is actually owned by the French. Isn't that how history goes, though? Who knew? So like James, and like I say this as someone who is still, like I said, very into Jameson, but it's it's owned by the French. Just just full disclosure. The French are fine. Like I have no problem with this. Like Jameson is still a very good, like it's a very good basic whiskey. I can't complain. I still have some beef with them over how they reacted to Euro Disney, but like, whatever. <laughs> so, Pernod Ricard, I don't know how to pronounce this. Jesus Christ. <laughs> they did some rebranding and they kind of, they made Jameson their flagship brand and they really pushed it aggressively in the American market and it paid off. Like today, the Jameson brand alone is responsible for over 70% of global Irish whiskey sales. Jesus. Yeah, so it's like, did Jameson Rise Alone help reestablish whiskey on the international market? And I will say, like, in 2009, I, so that's the semester I was studying in Ireland. It was spring 2009, and my dad came to Ireland. And before this, my dad drank exclusively Windsor Canadian. I mean, Canadian whiskeys are fine. I I have uh, some issues with Canadian mist, but that's not their fault. That's, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so my dad, before this, he would drink Windsor and he got it in like a liter plastic jug. Oh. And he would, <laughs> this is so bad. He would, uh, he would, when he got back home 
from being in the fields, he would crack open a can of Diet Mountain Dew. No, don't say what you're going to say. He'd drink about a fourth of it, and then he'd fill the rest up with Windsor Canadian. That is disgusting. And there was at least one occasion where I asked him for a drink of his Diet Mountain Dew, and he's like, yeah, here, sure. So the first whiskey I ever drank was Windsor Canadian. Did dads just make questionable choices back then? Like, because I know my dad would get... This um, would have been... I would have been probably 11, late, like 1999. Yeah, yeah, because like the very late 90s, early 2000s, my dad would get Sprite and then mix it with uh, green apple schnapps. Oh, my dad was also a big fan of the apple schnapps. I I still it's like green apple schnapps. Dad thing. I can't drink a lot of it. Uh, because it is a lot of sugar, but this shit's delicious. You can't complain. But yeah, so I definitely drank some. But actually, I'm pretty sure, and this wasn't anything I looked up, but I think Mountain Dew was made to be a mixer for whiskey. That's awful. It shouldn't have been. No, it's terrible. Don't do it. But I was really proud because in 2009, when I was in Ireland, he came to visit me and we went to the Jameson Distillery and he tried Jameson and now he drinks almost exclusively Jameson, which I'm super proud of. You fixed your dad. I fixed him. And that's to say, I don't currently have any Jameson on my bar card, but I did. Um, Whatever. Anyway, Jameson, still a very good brand. I've gone to both of their locations in ireland one of which only actually only one of them is an active distillery their one in dublin is a tourist trap that's fine it has a lot of wax mummies what not mummies no, that's <laughs> dummies like <sighs> any and it, it was at least still true in 2017 when i visited but like the thing is with a lot of english and irish museums is that they feel the need to fill them with wax dummies to illustrate historical times i mean that's not the it's the creepiest thing but it's not the worst thing i went to the 221 baker street um museum in london was just full of wax mummies dummies in 2000 dummies dummies. (laughs) shut up yeah that was 2009 though maybe they've improved i don't know i'm old this is so off the point um it's So my point was, it's only been in the last decade that Irish-owned distilleries have been able to get a foothold again. So the first one was in 1989, this guy named John Teeling, he opened up the Cooley Distillery, which is the first independent Irish distillery to open in over like 100 years, which is an accomplishment. Uh, He would later be scooped up by the Beam Company, which is the maker of, of Jim Beam. They would also be scooped up by Suntory, which is like the big Japanese whiskey company. And they're like a big just producer worldwide of whiskey. Um, but his son, his sons, Jack and Stephen, went to open Teeling Distillery in 2012. And this is, I toured them in 2017 when I was back in Ireland. It was the first, Teeling's was the first new distillery in Dublin for over 125 years. It is what I'm drinking right now. Uh, and new independent dist- distilleries are popping up all over the country again. So, Shanta. <laughs> Which is Irish for cheers, in case you were. Oh, I thought you were trying to say the name of that author that Avalon uses on. Slaughter? <laughs> Sausage slaughterhouse or something. Um. A few last words on drinking whiskey. A few vocabulary words if you want to sound smart while you're ordering. Like you're not right now. Four glasses in. I mean, come on. I'm doing okay. Maybe. I'm going to listen back to this when I'm sober, and I'm going to be just mortified. Yeah, you are. 
So if you want the whiskey with no added adornments, you can order it straight up or neat. That's just... That's pretty standard. Just whiskey. You can also order it on the rocks. That will get you a whiskey that's been poured over ice. Um, You can also order your whiskey with a splash of water or water back to get a glass of water on the side um, or a splash of water in the whiskey itself. So, like, this is what many people recommend if you're actually interested in tasting your whiskey. It opens up the flavors. Yeah. So, yeah, because most whiskeys, like, at 60 to 70% alcohol, like, it's too strong in alcohol for anyone to actually get a handle on the flavor. Like, the alcohol numbs your taste buds and the receptors in your nose. And adding water helps open it up and give the drink a fuller flavor. So don't let anyone think you're a pussy for having a little water in your whiskey, because that's how it's supposed to be drank. That's why you drink it over ice and not those whiskey rocks, because the ice melts and then you get water in it. Exactly. And that's how I drink my whiskey. I like to pour it over ice. And I like, I have even like a special little ice maker for those big fucking square ice cubes. We have like nine of those in our fridge because Travis's favorite drink is bourbon. I actually ran out tonight because I forgot to refill it and I only had two left. So I had to like use regular ice cubes and now I'm just drinking it with water because I ran out. But yeah, like I love to pour my whiskey over ice and then you let the ice melt a little and it's like it's perfect. Also a pro tip, I learned this at the Tealing Distillery. After you swallow your whiskey, exhale. That helps you avoid some like the burn that goes down your throat. I can't remember the exact science behind why that works, but it does. You're exhaling some of the alcohol vapors that were coming off of it. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Like some sort of drunk dragon. Um, so don't let anyone give you shit if you want to drink your whiskey. If you don't want to drink your whiskey like a snob. Like it is perfectly acceptable to mix your, whis- mix your whiskey or drink it in a cocktail. Maybe not with like... The super expensive stuff, but, like, with the Jack Daniels, like, your basic Jameson, like, fine. Um, personally, I am I am obsessed with old fashions. At, again, I'm, that's the only drink that ever gets made in this house with... So good. I'm going to give you my personal old-fashioned recipe, which is... Um, so, you got to make yourself some simple syrup. Look up the recipe online. It's It's equal parts sugar, sugar and water, water, and then you yeah. boil it, and then you let it cool. And you can add flavors to it if you're so inclined. Exactly. So, like, I will fill the glass with, like, just enough to fill the bottom of the glass with, like, a simple syrup. Do three fingers of whiskey and then, like, three dashes of bitters. It's the perfect old-fashioned. Like, you can throw in, like, cherries and shit and, like, an orange slice. But I don't have that on hand because it's quarantine. Fuck it. You're going to get scurvy. (laughs) Probably. Um, I'm also a big fan of, like, whiskey mixed with ginger ale, or a pro tip I got from the Jameson Distillery, cranberry juice. Yeah. Amazing mixer for whiskey. Um, ginger beer, if you're like me and you love a good Moscow mule, but you are largely indifferent to vodka, just throw some whiskey in instead. It's very good. Yeah, I think that's called, like, an Irish mule or something. Yeah, I've heard it called an Irish mule. Um, but the last line I have in here is, do whatever you want, who cares? It's 2020. Fuck yeah, it. no one's going to see you because you're in your house. Exactly. But like whiskey, I love whiskey. <laughs> it, like I said, it's the only thing I drink besides maybe gin. Because you're a pervert. <laughs> All right, let's <laughs> let's wrap this episode up. Um, yeah, what if, is the, I've like not been paying attention. It's almost two hours. Yep. Cool. Uh, this is going to be a nightmare to edit. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. So if you have your own a whiskey mixer that you'd like to share um we are on twitter at afternoonified 
uh, Instagram at Afternoonified. We're not on Facebook anymore. No, fuck it. Fuck Facebook. Uh, um, get at Afternoonified.com. You can email us at Afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, like, I don't know. The other things. Do the other things. We, we love to hear from you. And uh, don't forget to check out our new merch. It's very, very cool. Um, if you want to talk about whiskey with me, I will talk about whiskey for hours. You did. You have already done that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we will see you later. Goodbye. You have to say the thing. love the bachelor franchise ah the romance the adventure the drama but do you also kind of hate the bachelor franchise oh yeah the sexism the racism the intense heteronormativity of it all here at date card we're just two obsessed queerdos who love to dissect talk shit and get blocked by problematic contestants yeah we're here for the good the bad and the chad of it all you can find us on soblo media itunes and spotify please Please accept accept this rose. rose This, this is as above, so below.